This is Debbie, and welcome to another brand new episode of The Offbeat Life, where I speak to inspiring individuals who ditched the norm to live their best life and become location independent. This week, I'm so excited to speak with Tim LaFell, who is an award-winning writer and blogger. Tim is a travel destinations expert who has written articles from five continents over a period close to two decades. Having traveled around the world three times, he's been able to give so many people realistic and achievable goals to travel well for less. Listen on to find out how to travel for less and succeed as a nomadic entrepreneur. joining us today i'm here with tim hey tim how are you hey good so you have such an incredible lifestyle can you tell us a little bit more about you and why you live an offbeat life well i started off with a conventional life i went to college and did my thing and got a regular job and did that for a lot of years but then my wife-to-be my girlfriend at the time said i really want to go traveling around the world and I really would like it if you came with me, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go anyway if you don't. <laughs> so uh, it took a little bit of saving and rejiggering and whatever. But we we both used to work in the music business for uh, music companies, record companies, and we left and went traveling around the world. And I after I started doing that, I never wanted to go back to a normal desk job again. So I kept looking for ways to make a living. And we taught English for a while in Turkey and Korea. And I kept travel writing, just submitting articles to editors and that kind of thing. And um, a long while later, it eventually turned into a full-time job for me. Going from the music industry to becoming a travel writer, a lot of people would think about that. That's a huge leap, right? Going into the unknown and then leaving your job. What was that transition like, leaving that stable job that you had? And I'm sure there was a lot of fears. What did you do to actually execute that and become ready for it? Well, for me, it was a pretty gradual thing. Sometimes people just, you know, take the leap off the cliff and <laughs> become an entrepreneur, <laughs> you know, and just leave their old life behind. But for me, it was sort of gradual. I even came back to an office job for a while when I first had a baby, um, but just to have some stability and health insurance and all that. <laughs> but I, I, you know, eventually I got to a point where my earnings from my Travel writing and blogging were as as much as I could make in the in a regular job and, and without having to answer to anybody. And so that's when I officially took the leap and left it all behind. But it was very gradual for me, and I I think that's a smart move for a lot of people. Like just to have this other thing as a side hustle, you know, just do it uh, on the weekends and nights and whatever. It takes some sacrifices. You maybe don't have as much time to watch uh, the latest Netflix series, but you know, <laughs> in the end it can really pay off because it can get you to a point where you wake up every day and you're doing what you want to do instead of what you have to do. And that's a beautiful thing. For you to have a family and then to still do that, that's a really big thing for a lot of people because you do want that security of a stable income and a job and you still were able to do it. So you're the living proof, you and your, your wife, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I read a book a few years ago called Anti-Fragile um, by Nassim Taleb, which I really like a lot. It's it's a very deep and uh, thick book to get through. But one part he talks about on there is in that book is um, 
it can be safer and less fragile actually to be a freelancer or self-employed person than it is to work for a company because you can always get laid off from a company and go from, you know, a good salary to zero. <laughs> Whereas if you're doing some kind of thing on your own, you know, you may have a bad week or a bad month, but you're probably going to, you know, still be okay from month to month overall. So you don't go to zero. And that's, uh, so I have felt like it's not necessarily more risky to be self-employed. You just have to maybe hustle a little harder and you're more responsible for your future. Yeah, I think if you're a hustler and that's the type of person you are, there's never really a time where you're very much desperate <laughs> for money because you're always hustling. And you're right, it's it's a lot more riskier in some ways to be in your nine to five because you're in other people's hands and you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But when your life is in your own hands, you have more freedom, right, to do whatever it is. And maybe if one company lets you go from, you know one of your gigs you just find another one it's no big deal you're more prone to get back up again if there's a setback right and most travel writers i know these days are are bloggers they're book authors they're tv personalities or whatever but they've got a lot of different things and i think true for the entrepreneurs they have multiple streams of income so if one dries up they're not going to zero they're just their income drops by 10% or something, but they'll make up for it with something else. So Tim, what has been the biggest thing that you wished you knew before becoming a freelancer? It's funny. I kind of wish I'd known where things were going in terms of the internet. I actually started writing before the World Wide Web came along, which just seems insane to young people, like that there was <laughs> that there even was such a time. But I was writing for print magazines when I first started out and, and sending in physical slides for the photos, which just seems so archaic now, you know. Uh, there was no Dropbox for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have gone in full speed ahead sooner if I knew how fast things were going to change and what kind of publishing opportunities were going to be out there. Because really, when I went full time, that's why, because I had blogs that started making money. And I probably would have gone down that path a little bit sooner. The other thing is just realizing how long things take and how patient you need to be. I think I am by nature a pretty patient person, but it can literally take two or three years before from the day you start a blog until the day it starts actually getting serious traction and, and much less making any money. So, um, and that hasn't changed. Like things have sped up in a lot of other ways, but it still takes just as long to get established now as it would have been in 1998, you know? So you got to really just keep putting in the time without seeing much, um, feedback for a while. <laughs> it's just, so that involves a little bit of, uh, confidence and just, uh, patience to make it happen. I think that's also a really huge misconception for a lot of people because we see someone like you, Tim, who's been at this for such a long time and you have this huge success with what you're doing. And people think that it just takes it's very fast and then all of a sudden they can get, create a lot of income from it, especially now in the social media world. You know, as a viewer, we don't realize how much work it actually takes to be able to work with those companies. And you're right, it's really just persistence and patience and sometimes you don't see any results for months or even years. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I've always worked on multiple projects that kind of overlap because I actually wrote an article called uh, Writing for Now, Soon, in the Future because those are sort of three different things you have to be working on all the time because there are some things you work on where it's going to literally be years before you see any money from <laughs> it. 
<laughs> also, don't believe everything you see on Instagram. You know, uh, just because somebody's looking glamorous in their life doesn't mean they're actually making any money at it. <laughs> <laughs> you have gone through so much already in your life, and you've created this incredible business. But what has been the biggest setback that you've encountered, and how do you usually handle them? I've had months that were downright tough, and that's something you just deal with as a self-employed person or a freelancer. Um, whether you know you're a freelance graphic designer or systems analyst or scriptwriter or whatever, you're going to deal with uh, some months that don't go very well. And then half the time, it's because people pay late, and that's probably the biggest frustration I deal with. Is whether it's an advertiser or it's a magazine that owes me money or whatever. You know, you sort of plan your budget based on what you think you have coming in. And when that doesn't come in for another two months, that can really wreak havoc with uh, what you're doing. So I guess the best advice there is to have some kind of backup, whether it's, uh, you know, an emergency fund or a, a credit card with a good credit limit. So you can tide yourself over until you finally get paid what you're expecting. But uh, that's I feel like that's the most ongoing frustration I deal with. I've talked to a lot of freelancers, especially in this world, like as a blogger or a writer, and that's one of the biggest setbacks or even issues that we all have is when your client doesn't pay you on time. Have you been able to create some sort of system that will go around that or it's pretty much just the way it is for a lot of companies? Well, with some things I can demand payment faster like uh, there's this thing in the blogging world called a sponsored post where somebody just basically pays you to write about their company or to, to link to them or whatever so for those kind of things I think you can demand to get paid pretty quick or you just take it down you know? so you've got <laughs> you've got some leverage there you know the bigger the company the less likely that is to for them to agree to that so I guess one solution to that is if you're a blogger anyway is to get onto more big platform automated kind of things. So for example, ad networks, you know, display networks, Google AdSense, Amazon, these are big companies and they're going to pay you like clockwork because that's just part of their system. It's very systemized. So you're not having to invoice anybody. You don't have to like bug anybody. So whenever you can set up those kind of automated things that are going to happen for sure, it definitely makes your life easier. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked to a lot of people. You've traveled to so many different places. What is the worst advice that you've ever received? I have not really had many mishaps on the road, I have to say. I i don't think I have a charmed life. I've just <laughs> been very careful with my valuables, for one thing. Um, when I've had things stolen, it's been like on a train in India while I was asleep, and a, it was a locked bag, and somebody broke through it. You know, Somebody with a lot of determination. Um, <laughs> I just I think there's a lot of fear out there of travel and uh, especially by people who have not left the country before. They're scared of this crazy, dangerous world out there. And in reality, the U.S. is one of the most dangerous places in the world when it comes to gun violence. And I always tell people, you know, when they tell me they're scared of going somewhere, I, I say, well, watch your own local news every night for two weeks and tell me what somebody <laughs> would think would think if they were coming to your town. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just think there's a perception of danger that's really not very valid. Even if a country has danger and you're reading about it in the news, it's generally going to be confined to a certain area or it's just drug gang violence that only happens in the inner city and things like that. So for the most part, travel is very safe. And uh, I think there's a lot of 
overly cautious advice out there for people and worrisome advice, you know, and that stuff, it sells, it gets magazines sold. If it's on the cover, it does well, people click on it. But I think, um, they're peddling fear, uh, that may not be justified in a lot of cases. Isn't it funny though, that most people who have a lot of those fears and give you those types of advice are usually the ones that haven't traveled to many different places or never left the like, country. <laughs> I've had so many people lecture me about Mexico that have never been to Mexico. It's like, I've been to 20 states. You haven't even crossed the border. You don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you own a home in Mexico, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I should know if it's uh, if you're going to get killed or not. I've spent three years of my life there. <laughs> especially for someone who's a newbie at traveling or it can get you really fearful of so many different aspects of traveling or even just life if you listen to all of the advice that you're getting. Yeah, and if people are truly scared, if they really have a problem with that, I'd say just go to Canada, go to Western Europe, you know, go to some place like that. It's going to feel very familiar and easy and start your start off small. And then as you get more confidence, then you can then you can go to uh, Honduras or Bolivia or something, you know, but uh, it's uh, just get a little travel under your belt and then you'll see it's not as scary as it looks. Yeah, and I've gone to a lot of different places in the Middle East and certain part of Central and South America where people were like red flag and then I go there, everyone's so nice, the friendliest people you'll meet. Yeah. <laughs> it's so opposite to a lot of things. Obviously, there's dangers. I mean, like you said, there's dangerous things in our own backyard, but it's just having, you know, being smart about it and knowing when to be there and when to leave. Yeah, and unfortunately, people aren't this self-aware, but uh, most news networks are in the business of scaring you. That's what they do. You know, TV news networks want to make you feel like you got to be tuned in all the time to see what's going on. And some especially, I, I'm not going to talk about Fox News's political views, but <laughs> you, you can just watch their channel for an hour and realize, you know, that they're they're trying to make you scared. That's their job. You know? So, um, you know, take it all. Uh, just turn the TV off. First of all, that's a good first move. But otherwise, just understand that um, that if it bleeds, it leads mentality that the local news channels use is also true on the 24-hour networks, too. Yeah, and it's it's really scary if you actually look at all of that, how much fear you have with everything. Then you'll never leave your house. You need to have a cocoon or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And then they'll start scaring you about home invasions, and then you won't know what to do. You need, like, a cave underground somewhere where no one can find you. You'll just be a hermit. <laughs> There are some of those for sale. They're old uh, nuclear <laughs> bunkers that they've turned into condominiums for people that are expecting the apocalypse. <laughs> There's something for everybody. You can always That's find right. it. <laughs> you have your hands in a lot of different things. You're a blogger. You write books. You do all of these different things. How are you able to create income from the start of your career, and how do you continue to do that today? Well, thankfully, it's gone from active to passive more along that sort of continuum, because when I started out as a freelance writer, I didn't get paid unless I wrote something for someone and got permission to publish it. When I started publishing books, that became a little more passive because you write the book and that's a lot of work and you got to keep promoting it. But over time, you start getting royalties from it without working on it every single day. And then it's the same with the blog. You can 
I always say that's the closest we get to a paid vacation. Your blog can still be making money while you're on vacation and you're not checking in on it. And there's a lot of things we can do now that are automated. You can future post on WordPress so I can write a post today and have it go up while I'm off the grid hiking through the mountains. And, and you can do the same with social media. You know, you can still be active on social media without physically being on there in the moment. So I think things like that have made it so much easier. So I get a lot of passive income that uh, people really honestly ask me when I sleep. And I get eight hours of sleep almost every night. I think it's really important to get a lot of sleep. <laughs> and so I'm not killing myself. I'm working a full day. I'm definitely not the four-hour work week guy. <laughs> but a lot of what I do is is making money while I sleep or when I'm uh, traveling somewhere. So I don't have to be killing myself all the time. That's what we all want, right, is to have that passive income and you're able to do that. But it took you a lot of years to actually set yourself up and create that system for yourself so it doesn't happen overnight, like what we all want. <laughs> uh, and I always say it's kind of a misnomer. It's not really passive income. It's more like leveraged income. You know, you do something now and you're that what you do right now, your action is going to have leverage weeks from now or months from now. And that's kind of the idea, too, of um, managing your time. You really have to spend your time on tasks with leverage. So what are you going to do that's really going to have an impact as opposed to um, piddly little stuff that anybody could be doing? So I'm a big fan of outsourcing you know, paying someone else to do kind of the drudgery tasks or the things that I don't enjoy or the things that I'm not so good at. Because if you try to do everything yourself, you really are going to be working 100 hours a week. And that's no fun. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're just starting out, they want to have their hands on everything. And you probably were like that too. In the beginning, all of us are your you become a perfectionist, you know, you think this is mine, I want it to be my voice completely, and it has to be perfect. And then as the time passes, you realize if everything is perfect, nothing gets done. <laughs> yeah, and some of those things somebody else will do for you for $6 an hour. So why are you doing it yourself? You know, I mean, <laughs> it's good to learn to code HTML or learn how to use Canva, you know, for graphics and things like that. It's nice to at least know how they work. But uh, I would rather hand them off to somebody else and they're going to do a better job than me. <laughs> so you talk about outsourcing and that's one of the things that allows you to have eight hours of sleep. <laughs> Where have you been able to find really good people to outsource your work? Well, I feel like, I feel like I ought to be getting paid by Fiverr because I <laughs> I recommend them to everybody I know. It's f i v e r r dot com, and uh, it's not really five dollars. It's really seven dollars now if you hire somebody for a task. But it goes up from there. So I use that a lot for just one off things. Um, if I need a specific graphic project done, or I need one little thing fixed on my blog, and I don't know what's wrong. I, I use that all the time for those kinds of things. But then I have several regular assistants, um, and some of them I found through word of mouth, and some of them I actually found through Craigslist in other countries, which um, a lot of people don't really think about. But you don't necessarily have to go through some outsourcing service um, or Upwork or anything like that. You can just go direct a lot of times. If you advertise in English in another country, you will naturally only get the people applying who read English. <laughs> and so you're half, you're halfway there on the language thing. But I've actually hired people from 
Costa Rica, Panama, and Mexico through Craigslist just by advertising like on Craigslist Mexico City or Craigslist Panama City. And, you know, some people haven't worked out, but some of them have stayed with me for years and years. And two of the people I have working for me now, I, I found that way. And they've been with me for at least one of them for at least five years and the other one for three years, I think. And I've been really happy with that. And for me, I wanted someone kind of in the same time zone or close enough. Like I had trouble with um, hiring people in the Philippines because first of all, I, I think they have a whole different um, work ethic and way of doing business and all that kind of stuff that culturally it's difficult, even though their English is great, but it's just so far away. You know, it's like you're on opposite sides of the globe and it's, it's really tough. You can't do everything by email. Sometimes you need to talk. <laughs> and that's such a great idea of using Craigslist to do that. And I love Craigslist, you know, I don't care what it looks like. It still looks like it's from the nineties, but it <laughs> <Exactly>. works. <laughs> it, it works. It, <laughs> And uh, they're not going to change because uh, they're happy with it. They did something in Wired one time where they had people do redesigns of Craigslist and submit it to the owner. Like, here's some ideas. And he said, nah, I'm fine. <laughs> Why fix something that works? It's not broken, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be really weird if all of a sudden we went to Craigslist and it just looks completely different. Yeah, if it looked really slick, you would feel like, oh, man, is this going to cost me now? I know. I'm like, no, we need it that way. You found your workers on Craigslist. How are you able to train them effectively? Because that's another thing that I've spoken to different entrepreneurs and freelancers about this is we all hate to train, but we have to do it so that the work gets done the way we want it, right? So what are some of the ways that has worked for you when you're training yeah, I think it goes back to that leverage thing. It feels like uh, it's time you could be spending doing something else in your business, but it's something that you just have to invest in because you got to get these people on the right track or otherwise you're going to have problems down the line and be always correcting them. So I try to be real clear about what I'm expecting and what I need and then just tweak as you go along. And um, what you should do that I've never gotten around to is be doing tutorial videos and you know with screenshots and things like that like if I were a really good manager that's what I would have done but uh, unfortunately I never got around to it or found the time for it but what I have done is have the person doing the job make a checklist and sort of a uh, a manual of sorts so that if they have to leave which is inevitably going to happen then there's something in writing sort of a, a system in place for the next person to take over and not have a, you don't have to start all over again so I'm a big believer in checklists because there's a lot of different things you just sort of forget about or miss. And so if you at least have that, then that's a good starting point. And then I try to have regular calls with the person, actually um, some kind of video way, because uh, if you can see each other, it helps, I think. When you have that connection with the person, it becomes more of a working relationship, not just an email and there's no face to it. So you get more invested in into the work as well. Yeah, and uh, it's important uh, to keep the lines of communication open, but it depends on what kind of manager you, are, manager you are. I'm kind of a hands-off guy. Like if people are doing their job, then I don't really bug them. You know, it's like only <laughs> I feel like we need to touch base now and then, but um, if there's a new project or something, then we'll talk on the phone. But 
I, I'm not a micromanager, and I, I think um, the people that work for me appreciate that. Well, you don't have to if you've trained them well, you know. You just let them do what they need to do. I think if you micromanage so much, it's going to stop them from actually becoming efficient. Yeah, I think people want to do a good job, and if you leave them alone, they will. It's just when you... Um, harass them to death and they want to leave yeah <laughs> then that's when you lose really good people working for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's fast forward to 30 years from now and you're looking back at your life what legacy would you like to leave and what do you want to be remembered for uh, I think I'd probably like to be remembered for my body of work and that's a pretty broad thing but um, I've written some really good articles I think that have won some awards and I'm, I'm proud of those and I'm proud of um, the recognition from others. It's good to get that kind of feedback sometimes. And um, I'm proud of my books. I mean, they're not novels. They're not going to be around 100 years from now. But I'm still proud of them because I, I think I put my all into them. And I get emails all the time from people that have bought a book of mine. Said, and sometimes they've said, this book changed my life, the one about moving abroad. But other times it's just like my travel writing 2.0 book, people have sent me emails and said, man, this really got me on track. And, um, I was only getting really middling traffic and now I'm doing really well, or I'd only gotten one thing published and now I've gotten 20 articles published as a freelancer. So thank you. So that kind of stuff really, um, makes me feel great and feels like I'm doing something worthwhile. And to already be able to do that now and then just continue on for 30 or more years is just a legacy that just keeps happening. And then it's already happening right now. You do have that legacy. <laughs> yeah. And my um, one of my books, it's called The World's Cheapest Destinations. I'm working on the fifth edition now, which is not something I ever thought when I did the first edition that it would live this long. But uh, people keep buying it. So I keep doing updates. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a great thing. Just keep doing the updates. They keep they keep wanting it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that that's what always gives me gratification. It's like, uh, I don't know, there's, there's sayings like that out there about, uh, you know, a paycheck is the best uh, verification. You know, if people are actually willing to pay you for something, then it's worthwhile probably. Yeah, it makes you feel good, even if you're passionate about it. But once you start getting paid for it, it changes everything because <laughs> now you can actually create income from something that you really love. It's a great thing to be happy when you sit down at your desk on Monday instead of being like, oh, my God. <laughs> Not dreading <laughs> it, right? Now Mondays are – it has a totally different new meaning for you. <laughs> yeah. I heard on the Tropical MBA podcast they said the big difference between entrepreneurs and office workers is an entrepreneur uh, – a office worker, when you get to Wednesday, you're like, woohoo, almost Friday. An entrepreneur gets there and goes, oh my God, it's Wednesday already? I got so much I got to get done. <laughs> that is so true, Tim. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so let's get to some fun questions. Some people like myself, I nerd out on interviewing, inspiring people like you, hiking. What about you, Tim? What do you nerd out on? Yeah, I do love hiking and getting outdoors and kayaking and things like that. And so um, I, I guess one of my favorite magazines is Outside. And I, I look at those pictures like everybody else and go, oh, my God, I'd love to be there. Um, so uh, I do love getting outdoors and doing that that kind of fun activity and getting a workout while you're traveling. So I, uh, I geek on geek out on that a bit. And um 
it's funny. A lot of my interests, I'm, I'm really interested in cycling, you know, and riding my bike, but I'm very casual about the equipment and everything. So I don't geek out on that. I have a very old and kind of uh, rusty bike that's still serving me well. And, uh, I just keep riding that. So, um, I, I like to read wired and see what, what's coming in the future, but I'm not, I'm not obsessed about, it. I'm not really doing much action based on where, <clears throat> what the future holds, but I love reading about that stuff, seeing what's coming down the pike. But uh, <clears throat> I watch I watch good TV now and then. I go to good movies, but um, I'm not obsessive about any of those things. My daughter is. She's studying creative writing, creative writing for the media. So she's completely obsessed with uh, television and movies. <laughs> Having traveled to so many different places, what has been the most life changing meeting with an individual that you have ever encountered? Man, um, I go back to this story from long ago on my second trip around the world um my wife and i got married because we figured we should be official and then we we uh, left right after our wedding and went to morocco and, and so i guess that that was our honeymoon but it was really like a three-week backpacking trip so it wasn't wasn't the kind you normally picture but i had heard all these horrible stories back to that fear thing again about how scared you should be in morocco and how dangerous it was and you got to have your wits about you. And I'd read all those Paul Bowles novels and short stories about all these crazy characters. So we met this guy in the very first town we were in. And um, he uh, took us to his brother's jewelry store, but it was only to meet his brother. And he didn't care if we bought anything. And he showed us around town a bit. And he said, where are you guys going after this? And we said, oh, we're taking a train to Fez or bus to Fez. And he said, oh, that's my hometown. That's where I live. I'm going back, too. And it turned out he was going the same day. And he already had a ticket. He wasn't trying to scam us. <laughs> and so, um, But still, we have this thing in the back of our mind, like, oh, man, should we trust this guy? But he said, let me show you around the city once you get there. And long story short, this guy spent days with us and just showed us all around his city and invited us to his home for lunch one day. We met his wife and his kids. And he was just the nicest person. He took out our guidebook and showed us everywhere we should go in Morocco and crossed off places that he thought weren't worthwhile. And um, and he didn't want anything from us. Like we practically begged him at the end to take us to this carpet shop because we really did want to buy one that we were going to send home and we didn't want to get ripped off. And so we wanted a local along. He's like, oh, I don't really do that. I don't want to, you know, get into this transaction. I was like, just make sure we're getting something decent instead of a a crappy one. He's like, all right, all right. So he didn't have any kind of agenda. And my, um, my lesson from all this is, you know, you should keep your guard up and, you know, trust your instincts and whatever, but sometimes you just got to trust people and it works out well. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, you meet so many different people in the world and some of them are bad, but most people are good and they want to be friends with you and they genuinely want to help. So that's a good lesson. <laughs> yeah. And he was a guy who had been a traveler in his younger life, and he was probably in his 30s. But um, he just wanted to hang out with other people that had been around instead of, like, the people he knew that were his friends who had never been anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any question that you wish people asked you more of? Um, I wish they didn't ask me what my favorite country was because it's sort of a, a silly, irrelevant question, but everybody always wants the superlative. But I wish they asked me which countries I kept going back to and why, because I think that's a more relevant question. Like, what made you return to this place for the third or fourth time? You know, what is it about that place that drew you back? Because that, to me, is the sign of a, 
a destination that's really got something going on. <laughs> so which destination is it, Tim, that you always go back to? <laughs> um, well, clearly Mexico's one because I ended up um, settling down there and buying a house um, that I live in sometimes. But the other one for me has been Peru. I've been there five times now. There's something about that place that keeps pulling me back. And I sort of know what it is, but some of it's just a feeling. But I like the mountains and the Andes are really spectacular. But I like the fact that there's a living, breathing culture there that still um, wears their traditional clothing and they're not just doing it for tourists. Like if you go hiking into the deep mountains there, you'll get to villages that, you know, maybe they see two or three tour groups a year and people are still dressed like that. You know, just when you surprise them, they're dressed like that. <laughs> they're, not, uh, <laughs> they're not doing it just to pose for photos. And I, I really like that aspect and the history they have with the uh, Inca culture and everything. So um, that's the place I, I keep getting pulled back to, it seems. Yeah, you mean they're not Instagrammers? They're <laughs> they're just in the mountains, just Instagramming with people? That's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of that around Cusco. You'll see the lady with the llama that's posing, and she'll charge you a dollar to you know take a picture, and that's a business for her. Yeah. But but people really do dress like that in their in the villages, and it's not uh, they're not posing. Yeah, it's their their authentic self, as people say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I love the fact that you live abroad and you have a home in Mexico. And also, everyone, make sure you listen to the extended interview with Tim because he's going to let us know how to live abroad for less. So that's going to be a really exciting talk that we're going to have, Tim. So what are you working on currently that's really exciting for you? Well, my most pressing thing is this fifth edition of the World's Cheapest Destinations that's staring me in the face. I got to get this done um, and knock it out. Um I, I go back and forth between traveling and, and then just really pounding away at my desk. And right now I'm at pounding away mode. I uh, just came back from a trip and trying to catch up from that. What I'm kind of looking forward to is uh, we have suddenly become empty nesters because my daughter is literally starting college this week. And so um, I, for a lot of years now, I've had to deal with school schedules, which is a real pain in the rear. And you end up going on vacation when everybody else is on vacation and before you. <laughs> You take off as a family. You got to pour over the school calendar. So I'm looking forward to actually just going other places and and being a slow traveler again, just staying for a month or two months or three months even. Um, because fortunately, those of us with a laptop job, we don't have to be in a specific place. So I can go work on a Greek island or uh, in Portugal or something like that. Uh, so I think we'll be doing a bit of that next year. Where if we're if I have to go to Europe for a conference, then I'm not going to just go for a week and come back. I'm going to go for two months and actually stay somewhere. Yeah, that's definitely the perk of being an empty nester and being a freelancer. <laughs> yeah. And Airbnb has made it a lot easier to do that. You can go somewhere for three weeks and no big deal. <laughs> you just can have an apartment. Yeah, absolutely. So if our listeners want to know more about you, where can they find you? Well, the easiest one that sort of links out to everything is my name, timleffel.com. So Tim, L-E-F-F-E-L.com. That's sort of my portfolio site that has my websites, my books, my articles and all that. So that's the easiest way to just sort of find something that you can remember. Um, my books are on Amazon if you search my name or just um, you'll find my websites by Googling me, my blogs, because Fortunately, there are not many people with my name, and that's a, a nice thing in the search engine age. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's always a good thing. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us today and for giving us all of these incredible tips. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Tim. Make sure to visit theoffbeatlife.com. Again, that's theoffbeatlife.com to get the extended interview with Tim where he shares how to live abroad for less. Offbeat family, I really appreciate you listening to this episode. I would love to hear more from you and what you think of the podcast. Suggestions on guests, topics we can discuss, or maybe you just want to be friends. Why don't we chat some more on Facebook at The OB Life or send me a message at hello at theoffbeatlife.com. I can't wait to hear from you.